So this week we're starting our new sermon series. We spent the summer learning about prayer together in our How to Pray series and um, that wasn't just for the summer, you know, that place of, of communion that we find with God and prayer and all that that entails and opens up for us. That's a, a lifelong pursuit. But today we begin a new series that's going to take us through most of this term. It has been a crazy year so far. I cannot believe that it is September. All of us will have journeyed through some, some peaks, um, some troughs, some highs and, and some big lows. The uncertainty of not knowing how long you can trust something for. The frustration for all the things that have changed and how that's affected all of our lives, our city, our, our people. All of us have been tested. Our resilience and our resolve, our belief, our security has all been tested. I think what we need is a refocus. Because I honestly believe that in the midst of shaking, our job is not to steady ourselves. Our job is to look to the one who is steady. To learn what endurance in our faith could look like. To hold fast, to hold on to Jesus. So, in that light, we're spending the next few months travelling through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews is probably one of the most eloquent and elegantly written books in the Bible. It's a letter, but we don't really find that out until the end. It kind of reads like a sermon at points. We don't know who wrote it because they didn't name themselves. There's plenty of speculation around it, but ultimately we don't know. So you'll hear us say a lot over the next few months, the writer to the Hebrews. And we can assume because of what we know of the time that it was probably a man that wrote it. So we'll probably say he too. The thing that, that really stands out to us though about Hebrews and part of why we want to spend time in this book is because of the context. Hebrews was written to a weary people. Jewish Christians, a generation or so after the church had begun, so still early church, but kind of like 50 to 70 years or so had passed. They're suffering oppression, dealing with it in very different ways. They're under a lot of pressure. They were people on the edge of giving up, of walking away, of going back, of wondering what was so bad about the old ways anyway. And the writer takes us to task. His, his purpose, I think, was to bring steady assurance to these people, to cultivate deep conviction within them, and to bring focused encouragement their way. The writer knows that the best encouragement he can give is one of keep going. Keep going. I think he also knows that this urging will only be effective if they are pointed towards their ultimate hope at every turn. Jesus. The book of Hebrews will see us grapple with a lot of deep stuff, but at its core, it is all about Jesus. That's the point. Always and only Jesus. So our desire is that we'll come out of this term looking to Jesus, eyes fixed on Jesus, hope set in Jesus, faith that is enduring, not by our own effort, but through Jesus. So let's start. I hope you're up for it. We're going to look at Hebrews 1 today. 
the whole thing and I'm going to read it first and then get into what I think God might be saying to us through it. This is Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angel spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end to which of the angels did god ever say sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation let me pray so father we want to open ourselves up to your word today and we thank you for your word thank you that it's alive active and it's doing something amongst us. Jesus, we want to learn more about you. More than that, we want to look to you more. We want to see you more clearly today. And Holy Spirit, we need your help so that you come and move amongst us all across the city and all of our homes. Move in our hearts. Amen. So when I was at university, I, I studied music and music students, we we kind of, we don't really ever venture to other disciplines because, I mean, first of all, why would you? We kind of just stayed in our own little department, in our own safe little music bubble. We even, we had our own section in the library. Back in the day, we actually also had our very own librarian as well. So we just had no cause to ever venture anywhere else. However, in our first year, all of these unwitting music students were faced with this horror of a course called musical acoustics, which is basically physics. And now, some music students absolutely have a head for science and maths, but I realize I am generalizing here, most do not. I mean, like, give us a complex time signature or some, some transposition, a tricky bit of sight reading, and we will rise to the challenge like a champ. But give us an equation, and we're going to dissolve at your feet a quivering mess. 
me and my friends would sit at the back of those lectures and never at the front because absolutely no way were we answering any questions. We would sit at the back, not in our safe little music department, but in Appleton Tower, which is arguably the ugliest building on campus. And all of us would just be transported back to these horrible days of sitting in maths or science at school. Most of us haven't given, haven't given that up years ago in favour of the arts. We'd be reading and hearing all this stuff. It just kind of like flew right over our heads, never, ever landing with understanding. How, when we had come to do a music degree, were we being subjected to this torture of physics? I mean, to this day, I do not understand it. And I honestly, yeah, I still resent it a little. When you open Hebrews, and stick with me, when you open Hebrews, the first section, verses 1 to 3, like, we totally get, because it's the gospel. Jesus is God's son. He's the exact imprint of God. He's defeated sin. He's accomplished it. It's done. The next bit can feel a little bit like getting caught up in a physics lecture when you came to do a music degree. Why is this the opener? Why is it that the first thing that the writer goes to with these people all about angels? Why? Like all about how Jesus is superior to the angels of all of these examples from different parts of the Bible and about how he's better than the angels. Why is that the starting point? It would be very easy to kind of skim over this bit and, and think, yep, 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 Jesus is better than the angels and think that's kind of not super relevant to me. It's a little bit confusing. I don't really know why it's there. So I'm just going to jump over to the bit that I do get. But this is what it started with. And Hebrews is if nothing. It is a very considered book. Why did it matter to them? Why does it matter to us? that Jesus is better than the angels. Why is that the starting point? I think the point is, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by the old trappings. Don't get distracted by the old ways. Don't get distracted by the, the wrapping and neglect the fullness of the gift that has been given to you. You see, for these readers, they were living in a context where the Jewish tradition they'd grown up in revered the law of Moses. Like that was what they'd based their lives around. And the argument that these early Christians would have been getting from all around them was, why would you want anything more than this? What's better than the law of Moses? It was delivered by angels. It's what we've lived for by centuries. Deeply aware of the infinite distance between man and God, the Jewish people had placed their hope in mediators. And as we know from other stories in the Bible, at critical points in their history, God had sent angels to reveal his will. That's not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament too. An angel spoke to Mary and to Joseph. Angels cared for Jesus after he was tempted in the desert. An angel sprung Peter from prison. It is inspiring, it's necessary, absolutely. But it is important to remember that it was always just the preparation. The angels were and are by the meaning of their very name messengers. Really important messengers. 
but messengers nonetheless. Jesus is the Son of God. Don't get distracted by the wrapping. I don't know about you, but now more than ever, I need to be sure about what I believe. I need to be sure about who I believe. We need to see Jesus with even more clarity than before, to stand even more firmly on the assurance of who he is. That's why this is the opener. The writer is starting as he means to go on. It's not just literary flourish. It tells us how things are going to run. Everything else in this letter flows from the recognition of who Jesus is and what he is like. From beginning to end, it is eyes fixed on Jesus. So, all of this detail matters. Because the writer wants his readers to be sure. And we as the readers now, we also need to be sure. So what then do we learn about Jesus here? First, Jesus is the one we worship. Look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus is the one we worship. And we know that, you know. Of course we do. We say it all the time. We sing it all the time. We read it all the time. We know that Jesus is the one we worship. But we also know our own frame. We know that we are easily distracted, that we are easily wooed by other things. Our worship is precious to Jesus, but yet it too often gets misdirected towards something or someone else, whether we realized it or not. For the readers in the early church here, it was misdirected towards the mediators they had come to rely on from their Jewish roots, angels, God's heralding messengers, the revered law of Moses. For us, it is much, much more subtle. Because you see, the world is going to tell you, worship everything, but worship nothing. We are bombarded with enticement, and we're told we're held to nothing, that we are our own agents. It seems like freedom. Honestly, I don't think it is. I think it is nothing short of exhausting. What you worship holds you. It's true. What you worship holds you. Only Jesus can sustain you. True worship treasures God above all things, above everything else. You see, when we worship Jesus, we're not just singing songs and feeling some feelings. I mean, we've learned that the hard way this season, haven't we? What we're doing, what we're doing and what we so often don't get whether you're in your living room or you're in Central Hall, it doesn't matter. When you worship, you are declaring with your mouth and with your heart, you are above everything else in my life, Jesus. That is bold and it is powerful. Jesus is the one we worship because his worth is so infinite. His power is 
incomparable. His love for us is unending and unfailingly generous. We cannot exaggerate him in worship. He is above exaggeration. What else in your life can you say that of? But he should be the only one we worship. When anything else takes his place, what comes alongside him, our worship to him becomes diluted. G.K. Chesterton says, we are perishing for lack of wonder, not for lack of wonders. Have you lost some of the wonder? Maybe it feels like this season has stolen some of that wonder. The good thing and and the hard thing as well is that you can't will it back. Wonder returns when you gaze on the wonderful one. Your worship is precious to Jesus, but he's jealous for all of it. Is there anything in your life that you're treasuring above Jesus that's stealing your wonder away? desire, a hope, a person, a home, job, vocation, whatever it is, hear this same call from this letter today. Jesus is the one we worship because there is no one more worthy than him. Second, Jesus did for us what no one else could do. In fact, only Jesus was fit to do what he did for us on the cross. That's the point that the writer is making here. In verses 8 and 9, the writer quotes from a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 45. And now, that might not seem like it has masses of significance for us. He quoted a psalm, big deal. But remember, the people reading this, they weren't fully understanding that this Jesus they were worshipping here and now was not something new to focus on, but that he was the fulfilment of all everything they had read and learned for years. So by quoting again and again from the Old Testament here, which is something that the writer does a multitude of times across this whole letter, he is saying, this king that you read about there, this king is Jesus. He's saying not only did he provide freedom from sin, but because of who he is, He is able to sit down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All of what you learned and hoped for is fulfilled completely in him. He is the Messiah. The anointed one you read about in that psalm is the anointed Messiah that you have followed. He is saviour and he is king. It's his throne that will last forever. So again, what does that mean for us? Because like, it's not like we're questioning whether Jesus is the king fulfilling Jewish scriptures, right? No, of course not. But often and too easily, as with worship, we lose the awe of what Jesus did for us. And then in fact, without his sacrifice, we would be totally lost. The Jewish people needed something. They were waiting on the Messiah and when he came, many didn't recognize him because they had spent so many centuries focused on their ways of getting by. 
We need a saviour. He has come, but we don't always recognise him, even after we've followed him, because we've spent all our energy on our ways of getting by. I think that Jesus wants to take the veil from many of our eyes today. Whether for the first time, when you know you've spent all your energy looking for something and nothing has worked. Look to Jesus today. Say yes to him. Or whether you've known Jesus for a long time, but the ways of getting by seem to be what still play front and center in your life. Allow Jesus to take the veil off your eyes again today, to see him again, to be captivated by him again. Like when Thomas, Jesus' friend, had trouble believing. His exclamation when Jesus stood before him was just simply awe. My Lord and my God. He saw him. Thirdly, Jesus' work is final, it is complete, and it is perfect. What that means is that his work for us on our behalf is unrivaled and it cannot be challenged. Now, does that mean we get an easy ride? Of course not. But does that mean that we have security beyond ourselves? That we have security for tomorrow? That we have a secure future? That we have a secure eternity? Absolutely. What was important for the readers to get was that although the work of the angels was important, was was vital, was sent by God, they are powerful ministering servants used mightily by God, the work of the angels, the work of anything else actually, lacks the finality of Christ's perfect work because no angel, no person, nothing on this earth could feel for humankind atoned or plead for them as Jesus did and does. Jesus is not idle on his throne. The Bible tells us that he lives to make intercession for us, which means he's standing in the gap on our behalf, pleading and praying for us. He's doing that for you right now. That is a reality. There will be so many good and wonderful things in our lives, many of them sent by God. Angels can serve us, and they do, but they cannot save us. Only Jesus can do that, and he has. Those reading, they needed the same thing that we need. I mean, it's different circumstances, 21st century pandemic-ridden world to first-century Jewish Christians. And it's different fascinations as well. Moses and the law, the old ways, the angels, to, to every whim and fancy that passes before our eyes. But what we share is the same deeply felt need that has transcended through the centuries, a need that can only be met 
in Jesus. So I think the call to us is to become fixated on Jesus, to be fascinated by him again, to turn our eyes to him once more, to look on the wonderful one and let our wonder return and to steal ourselves where we know that our fickle and flighty hearts could easily be swayed away. In times of shaking, the best and and the bravest thing that we can do is to place our trust in the work of Christ alone and to allow Jesus to fill our horizons, to sharpen our priorities and to be front and centered in our experience. The vision is Jesus, always and only him. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, we open ourselves up to you. Holy Spirit, will you come you move amongst us. We need you to do amongst us what only you can do. We need you, Jesus. I pray for those of us who maybe feel our head is weighed down that we're just looking to the next step because it feels like so much that we were looking forward to or looking for has been taken away. I sense that Jesus would want to come and, and lift your head. Not to look far off into the future of what is or isn't there, but to lift your head to look at him. There's a really old hymn called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. One of the verses says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light his glory and grace. I think that the Holy Spirit is showing us where we have, maybe all of us just looked around to so many other things and not looked into his wonderful face often enough. It's so no wonder that we have become distracted No wonder that we've become discouraged. No wonder that it seems like our vision has dulled. Because we've lost the light. So Jesus, we need you to come and lift our heads this morning so that we can look full in your wonderful face. And let the light of your glory and the light of your grace bathe over us once more. Jesus, we confess our need of you. We really, really need you.
So come Holy Spirit, be with us, move amongst us.